0: Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our gospel reading from the gospel of John chapter 14, and we'll also talk a little bit about that part from 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we begin, you've got to um, picture the setting. We've been celebrating Easter and the resurrection of Jesus for nearly five weeks now, and at the conclusion of a week of weeks of seven weeks... That is, then we'll celebrate Pentecost, even the name Pentecost, the 50th day after the Passover. But our reading today takes us back to Monday, Thursday evening. Monday, Thursday evening, when Jesus um, and his discussion with his disciples takes up the bulk of the Gospel of John, When Jesus talks with his disciples and his disciples are worried, they're saying, all of a sudden, you know, this is a little bit different, a little bit out of the ordinary, a little bit different from the previous celebrations of the Passover. And he could see the worried looks on their faces. As he looked around, he could sense the emotion in their heart and the wondering in the back of their minds. What does this mean? And what's going to happen now? And so he answers them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And perhaps you are familiar with that. And, um, and a lot of the statements that we have here from John chapter 14 are familiar as um, like touchstone verses in our minds. Verses that we may have heard at a, at a funeral. Or verses that are very strong on Jesus as the only way and the truth and the life. But what Jesus is doing with these opening verses, that opening paragraph, verses 1 through 4, is that he is repeating their basic wedding practice. And that sounds a little strange. On this night before he is going to be crucified, that Jesus would repeat the basic Jewish wedding practice. But what he's doing is he's communicating to these believers exactly the single truth that he wants them to know. That he who would be going away would return for them. And so the way that their wedding practice worked um, is a little bit different from ours, where the families would get together and, um, and the marriages were often arranged, but also marriage is the consent of those who are married, so they agreed to be married. And the families would get together and sign the marriage contract or the marriage license, as we call it. And then the The groom to be married, the bridegroom, as he is often referred to in the parables that Jesus talks about this, the bridegroom would go back to his father's house and he would build on another room on his father's house. And that would be the place where he and his beloved would have the opening years of their marriage. And he would be able to take an entire year off from work. He would be exempt from military service. Um, And then parents and grandparents would be nearby in the case of children when and if God blessed them so. And when that room was prepared, then the bridegroom would go and get his bride. And then the entire entourage would follow along behind to the reception hall. And then they would have basically their, their marriage ceremony with the church and a week-long reception. And you can kind of see the corollary, uh, the parallel to our own wedding practice, that we typically have it all bound up in one day. Um, although there are times and circumstances when a couple may um, sign the marriage license and be married and then have their, their celebration at a later date. But typically we have just a wedding service here at the church and sign the marriage license sometime during the day and then proceed to the reception and the party. And if you understand that, that in these opening verses, Jesus is talking about, um, about their marriage practice, about the, the practice of their wedding celebrations, it begins to open and unfold a few new ideas and a few new threads that are woven throughout all of Scripture. You begin to see that when Jesus talks about the bridegroom coming and the ten ten young women waiting with their lamps and some of them have their lamps trimmed and burning and some don't have enough oil, that Jesus talks about his going to heaven as preparing that place for his bride, the church. That Jesus talks about his going to heaven as preparing his place for you. And that his return... And the bridegroom going to uh, pick up his bride, and then proceed to the reception and the ceremony and all the trappings and the celebrations. The return is what we are waiting for and watching for. And many of his parables that talk about his return at the end of time actually pick up on that same theme—that they are, um, we are those who are waiting, waiting expectantly for the bridegroom to come back through town, and we'll follow along behind. We think of of those who have been invited to the feast. And some said, well, I've got something else to do that day. And then the the master of the banquet says, well, go out to the highways and byways and find some more. And then the second part of that parable is here's this man who is inside the reception hall who wasn't dressed for a wedding. Some of the parallels that we have throughout Scripture begin to become a little bit more clear. When we see in these opening verses, verses 1 through 4 that Jesus is talking about his relationship to you. And that began when he brought you to faith. That began, um, if you were baptized as a, as a baby, there at that baptismal font. That, um, even that, that practice that has been common um, at various times and places throughout Christian history of making a baptismal gown for a little baby from the wedding dress of the mother. Or grandmother or great-grandmother or something like that because it's the symbolism that as a Christian when you are baptized you're baptized into the body of Christ you become a member of this bride of Christ and he is the one who rejoices with you he is the one who then takes you to his table for what we call a foretaste of that heavenly banquet he is the one who will welcome you into his heavenly reception hall for all eternity he is the one who has said that he will be coming back soon and so at this, at this time in John chapter 14, when Jesus is going to be going away, and the disciples realize this, Jesus begins to encourage them. Because when he starts out with this, um, this discussion of marriage, what he's really saying is, yes, I am going away, but I will be coming back. And his bride awaits. Look around. <laughs> his bride awaits. That you and I are living in that in-between of his going away and his coming back. That you and I, the Bride of Christ, are living in this time of our sojourning in this world, as I believe Peter put it. That we live as strangers here in this world. As people whose hearts are devoted to another. As people whose citizenship is in heaven. As people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus and washed and purified. Exactly the way that... um, that Paul describes the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. But in this in-between, in this in-between time of Jesus going away and coming back as we sojourn and as we wait, we live our lives here as strangers. And that's where that other reading from um, 1 from Peter comes in. Because if you look at the end of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10... The previous part really talked about the blessing that our Savior promises to those who believe in him. But then verses 9 and 10 talk specifically about who you are now, who we are now, and that we are demonstrably different. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God who called you out of darkness to live in his marvelous light. And all these things that he said... had said to his Old Testament people of Israel, because they were supposed to live as this shining beacon of a faith. They were supposed to live as this radiant nation with one difference, that God had said to them, that if you keep my law and if you walk in my ways, then you will be my chosen people and holy nation. And you don't see that kind of a conditional statement here at all. Because Jesus has bought his bride with his own blood. Because Jesus has washed you in his waters of holy baptism. And so he now declares about you, as you and I journey through this world, as strangers in this world, he declares about you that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, the people of God's own possession, who called you out of darkness, that you may proclaim his praises. when he says that that's kind of the the core question today as people living between um, being incorporated into the body of Christ being made members of the body of Christ and waiting for his return the perhaps obvious question is well are we ready the more pressing question are we living as his bride as his people that's kind of part and parcel of what we try to do as a church as a congregation not just um not just learning facts and learning doctrine for the sake of knowing facts and doctrine but so that they may be applied to life and so that we may live in a way that demonstrates who we are that we may live our lives as people who have been washed by christ as people who are set apart and are different from those around us even that's why, um, that's why our churches practice this, this rite of confirmation. As Jenna's is going to be confirmed, I'll mention your name again, right? Uh, that's why we practice confirmation. Because as somebody who has been washed there at the font, during our lives we want to be instructed in that truth. So that as we grow, we come to a deeper grasp and a deeper knowledge of what this truth means for our lives. That as we grow and mature throughout the various stages of life, that we don't get caught up by the voices of the world around us or try to find, um, find our purpose and meaning in being something other than the bride of Christ. But that we, we encourage and we teach our children so that they may be brought to this understanding that you, you also are a holy person, a royal priesthood, someone set apart to be God's own possession, That you also have been washed in the blood of Jesus. That you also, um, as you follow Jesus, this is the, the challenging part. As you follow Jesus, between the time of his first coming and then his second coming, there will be the challenge and the blessing to live as his holy person. There will be the challenge of trying to shine as one of Christ's holy people who makes Christian decisions for Christian reasons. There will be the challenge of following Jesus even if the rest of your friends or even if the rest of your family doesn't. There will be the challenge of saying, I know that following Jesus will mean a cross. Suffering of some sort, whether it's simply the internal struggle against temptation or the external um, strife of bearing the name of Christ. Thankfully, there hasn't been too much of that overt external persecution. But that's not the case for every Christian at every time and place. And certainly not on the other side of the world. And you see the temptation, right? It would be so much easier to say, well, it's just a matter of holding on to this one simple truth that Jesus is my Savior, and as long as I can kind of keep that to myself, then um, I'll just hold on to it until Jesus returns. But that's not who he created you to be. Which kind of circles us back to John chapter 14. Dear Bride of Christ, how are you living? Dear Bride of Christ, how are you waiting And the question that the disciples ask, Lord, what does this all mean? And when will we see you again? That's where it comes to. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man is my Lord. I believe that all the promises that Jesus makes about you and about me in his word are promises that will live through life and into eternity for all eternity. As we see from Scripture, I believe that, that God himself wants all people to be saved and that he is serious about this, and that he's added certainty to his sacraments so that you and I can know that our faith isn't something where we just look inside and try to say, am I believer or not? We can look outside. Did Jesus wash me there? Did Jesus feed me here? There is external proof that Jesus has made me a member of his body, the bride of Christ. And in a little bit, when we get to the the confirmation rite, it's a good practice. And you'll listen carefully because the promises there aren't promises that I am going to do it all. The promises are simply, am I going to listen to the voice of my Savior? Do I sincerely intend to remain here? To remain here at the gathering place where where, um, the bride of Christ gathers together? To come and meet my Savior exactly at this foretaste of the heavenly banquet where he has promised to be. To be reminded that my life here is, is not all that there is. And that my life here is something different and set apart from the world around me. Why? Because Jesus is so serious about his, um, his desire to make you his own for all eternity. That Jesus is so serious that he just stacks up the promises. And says, dear Christian, this is who you are. That your life isn't, isn't found in what you have or what you don't have. Your life isn't found in, in your successes or your failures. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that the gospel message we proclaim doesn't just follow along after us. I think that's, that's a very common misconception. That, that the gospel is just follows along after us. Like, I'm walking through my life. And then, whoops, I stumble, I trip, I sin. Jesus picks me up and dusts me off and says, you're forgiven. As if Jesus is simply picking up the pieces as we walk along. No. The gospel message is something far greater than that. Of something that goes before us and after us. Of something that changes who we are by God's work. And in a way that is certain and clear. That the gospel goes before us and says, this is the way. This is the way to heaven. This is the truth that Jesus has taken away your sin and that in holy baptism, Jesus made you to be different. Different as in a stranger here. And that the reason that that Christians would want to avoid sin isn't simply to say, well, um, because that's not what we do. But the reality, the reason why Christians want to avoid sin is that you were created for something different. You were set apart to be holy. Why would we want to go back to those deeds of death? You were created to be holy, and your holiness, your righteousness, depends on the Jesus who washed you. And the Jesus who washed you is the one who says to you and to me, exactly as he said to his disciples here, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, that your bridegroom has already committed himself to you in his pledge of holy baptism. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me, so that you also may know where I am." There's the promise. The promise that he will return to take us with him. And in between, verses 4 and really 6, in between as we live our lives, as we live as strangers here, what is the way? Continuing to walk in Jesus Christ our Lord. Continuing to walk, um, even as um, our confirmation right has a promise that I sincerely intend to walk in the way of my Lord Jesus. I sincerely intend to hear his voice so that he will come back for me too.